0: In the beginning, God created everything, including work. Made in His image, He designed us to be creators and cultivators and caretakers and builders, created us with the desire to work and to find joy at our very core in the work we've been given to do. His creation was very, very good. And then sin entered our world. Everything here became fractured and corrupted and harder, including work, until God sent Jesus Christ to redeem us, to restore our relationship with God, and to invite us to join God in His work of reconciling the world to Him. So every Sunday, we go to church, and our hearts are inspired by a sense of purpose, meaning, and mission, until Monday comes. Then our daily work, the thing that takes the most hours of our life, isolates us and segregates us from the sacred call we felt on Sunday. But what if we began to see it all as sacred? What if we could re-embrace the ancient and biblical truth that God made work and that work can be good? What if we could rediscover the joy that comes by exercising our gifts and using them to bless others, knowing that God loves the worker and the work? loves the teacher and the teaching, the mom at home and the mothering, the business person and the business, the caregiver and the care. Embracing the truth that we are designed to be a faithful presence in every part of our lives.
1: And that video is a great overview of where we're going over the next five weeks. And by the way, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, trying to figure out Christianity, I think you will find what the Bible has to say about work to be amazingly insightful, practical, and helpful. And that's where we're going over these next couple of weeks. Now, let me put this in the context of our church. One of the great strengths of Wheaton Bible Church is that we are a sending church, sending missionaries throughout the world year after year, decade after decade. One of our great strengths. But honestly, one of our weaknesses is that too often, we have narrowed this rich biblical concept of sending to missionaries so for example here we commission missionaries we commission short term missions trips every month we have a bulletin insert about some of our wonderful missionaries we have a global outreach center in the atrium that is all about uh, missions and missionaries. And every year, we have a missions fest that until recently, until just a couple years ago, was just global in its focus. Now, don't misunderstand. This isn't bad. It's good. Rhonda and I have kids that are vocational missionaries. We'd love to have more of our children move into the global cause of Christ and become missionaries. But as a church, what we haven't done and said as strongly and clearly is that each of you that know Christ have a calling before God to serve and to reach the world around you that is every bit as important as any of our missionaries or any of us on pastoral staff, including me. And one of the primary mission fields that God has given you is your work. Your work. And so in this series... By God's grace, I hope we can make a significant change, a a departure here at Wheaton Bible Church. I mean, a lot of this, frankly, is on me. I'm uh, the senior pastor. But what I'm hopeful for, beginning with this series, is that we are going to change this concept of sending and elevate you and your role in the world along with our missionaries. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Now why? Well, because as I said last week, according to the Bible, Sunday morning is the huddle. It's not the game, it's the huddle. And your life, the rest of the week, in the world and at work, is the game. And your game is just as critical to the kingdom of God as any missionary, any pastor. I mean, think about it. 70, 80% of the non-Christians that you work with or that you're friends with aren't going to come to church to hear a pastor. Instead, God has strategically inserted you into their lives. And that is your game. Now, let me change the metaphor. The church, Wheaton Bible Church, is not a cruise ship offering Christian luxury as we retreat from the world. But neither is the church a battleship where you pay pastors uh, to fire guns at culture from a distance. No, as J.D. Greer says in this book that I quoted last week, uh, Gaining by Losing, To properly understand, conceive the church, we understand it's not a cruise ship, it's not a battleship, it's an aircraft carrier. And every one of you that know Christ are fighter jets, loaded not with bombs, but with good works in the gospel, so that you might go into the world and go into your work to love and to serve and to lift up Christ. So if you know Christ, you are called into full-time ministry. You are a full-time fighter jet. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, just as much as I am. Now because this is such a big deal, and because it's so easy to narrow this concept of sending rather than broaden it, If we are going to have a a, a full concept of sending, we need to understand that every Christian has two callings. Two callings according to God's word that are in force throughout our entire lifetimes. And the first calling is to use your vocation, your job, or your abilities, your life situation to the glory of God and to the blessing of others. So if you are a Christian lawyer, you are a priest at your law firm. Christian mechanic, you are a priest at your garage. You tell me which is more difficult. If you're a retiree, you're a priest. And I'll come back to this. This is so important. That's our first calling. It's a vocational calling. Uh, The second is each and every one of us that know Christ have a calling to make disciples. Wherever, whenever, whatever age we are. And now as I said last week, this first calling, your vocation, is your role. The second calling, making disciples, is your goal and your role is a major means to this goal. So we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. Let me suggest three. And and, and I really want uh, those of you that are younger, you students, you younger adults, you you millennials, I, I, I want you to capture these. The first is this. Ask yourself this question. What skills or passions has God the Holy Spirit given me to bless the world through my work? Or through my life situation? The second question, where and how can I strategically advance the cause of Christ in the world? Is it as a nurse? Is it as a stay-at-home mom? Is it as a coach? Or like Jesus, as a carpenter? But the question we wrestle with isn't how much. How can I make the most money. It's how can I have the greatest impact? How can I best serve others? And then question number three, and this is the hardest question. Am I willing to do whatever God is calling me to do, to go wherever God is calling me to go? Am I willing? Now, you young adults, if you spend some time thinking these through and get some answers to these before the Lord, what that means is is that you will be able by God's grace through the power of the Spirit to enjoy a lifetime of influence and impact for the kingdom of God. And I so want this for you. That's why this series is so, so critical. So, with that as a context, And what I'm saying is today, May 1st, 2016, I want us as a church to move to a a much fuller, much broader concept of sending. Now I want to go back to the beginning and look at the divine design for work. So grab your Bibles, grab a Bible in front of you, turn on your Bibles, and let's go to the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, And we're going to pick it up in verse 27. We're going to look at six verses here in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now skip down to the first verse of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished, now here it is, the work that he had been doing. And on the seventh day, he rested from all his, here it is again, work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now go to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, and here it is again, to work it and to take care of it. Now Jack is married with three kids. He lives on the West Coast. Janet is a single female, no kids, never been married. She lives in New York City. Jack is a laborer for a landscape company. Janet is an investment banker. Jack drinks too much. Janet is quickly and continually depressed. They don't know each other. They will never know each other. They hardly have anything in common about one thing. They both hate their jobs. And apparently they're not alone. Three years ago, 2013, a Gallup poll revealed that 70% of Americans either hate their job or are completely disengaged from it. And as a result, this costs the United States billions and billions of dollars in stolen goods, uh, lack of productivity, and, and continual absenteeism. Now, If you are here today and you are a Christian and you're familiar with the Bible, then you get this at least conceptually because you know the Bible teaches we are sinful fallen people, we have sinful fallen hearts, and we live in a sinful fallen world. Therefore, you understand that work can be terribly frustrating, terribly demeaning, horribly exhausting. But what I want you to see is that here in Genesis 1 and 2... That wasn't God's plan from the beginning with work. Instead, what we have here is a highly positive view of work with both a divine and a human dimension that is unique among Christian or among, I should say, world religions. Now, remarkably, these six verses, chapter 1, chapter 2 that we read, Uh, uh, reveal that the Bible talks not only about work from the beginning of the Bible, demonstrating how important and central work is to the human experience, according to the Bible, but it also tells us that even God works, that God is a worker. And then in chapter 2, that God put Adam and ultimately Eve in the Garden of Eden, which was perfection, to subdue, to rule, and to work. Or to cultivate, create, and develop culture and civilization, as we heard in the video. And this means that work is central to what it is to be made in the image of God. What is it to be made in the image of God? Well, it's a lot of things. But one of the things is that we subdue, we rule, and we work. And this is prior to the fall. So, today, in light of this, I want to make four statements about work that flow from the pa- this passage. And the first is this Work is a virtue, not a curse. It's a friend, not an enemy. It's life giving, not life taking, because we were created by God to work. Here, work is in paradise. Now I want you to look at this quote from Tim Keller in his book, Every Good Endeavor, which is on work. I highly recommend it. You can get it in our bookstore. Look at what he says. One biblical scholar summed it up. It is perfectly clear that God's work plan, God's good plan rather, always included human beings working, or more specifically, living in this constant cycle or rhythm of work and rest. The contrast with other religions and cultures could not be sharper. Work did not come in after a golden age of leisure. It was part of God's perfect design for human life because we are made in God's image and part of his glory and happiness is that he works as does the son of God who said, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. Work is as much a basic human need as food, beauty, rest, friendship, prayer, and sexuality. It is not simply medicine, but food for our soul. Now get that last sentence. And so here we are thousands of years later. And not surprisingly, without work, people sense inner loss. People cut off from work, long to work. Work is not a problem to endure, as if retirement is the ideal. According to Genesis 1 and 2, work is the ideal. Rhonda and I, as I've mentioned, have seven adult kids. Uh, Four of the seven are married. One's uh, uh, about to get married Now, several of those kids are in vocational Christian ministry. Several are full-time stay-at-home moms. Uh, Several um, have very different jobs. For example, one is a lawyer. One is a a tech team leader. And two of our son-in-laws have full-time jobs. And then at least one or two part-time jobs on the side. Just a week or so ago, Rhonda and I were talking about how thankful we are that all 11 of them are walking with Christ, committed to their church, committed to their ministry, and how thankful we are that they are such hard workers, all of them. It's Genesis 1 and 2. It's why Proverbs condemns laziness. It's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, if he or she doesn't eat, or doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. Whoa. You see, we don't just live to work, we work to live. So be careful about what you say about work. Statement number two, work is essential to human freedom, essential. Today, um, North America, we believe, in the West, we believe that that freedom is the absence of restraint, the absence of constraint. This is fueled by researchers uh, uh, tell us our expressive individualism, this value we place on personal autonomy, so that today in America, man, you don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. Expressive individualism. But it's not, it is not working. Now, if you come to my house and come in my backyard and take some of my goldfish or koi out of my little pond and you put them in my driveway, it's not going to go very well for them. And if Rhonda finds out, it's not going to go very well for you. (laughs) You know, fish are constrained, bound by water. They get their oxygen from water, not from air. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, it's finding the right ones. You parents, help your teenagers grasp this. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions, it's finding the right ones. Therefore, the commandments of the Bible are the means, God-given means to freedom, liberation, and life. The commandments of God are the right restrictions that keep us alive, keep us swimming. So work with the rhythm of rest is one of the Ten Commandments. It's the fourth commandment. Six days you shall work. But the Sabbath, or the seventh rather, is a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, as important as Sabbath rest is, it's commanded. It's essential to the rhythm of life. As important as Sabbath rest is, the commandment isn't rest six days and work one. Nor is it go at it 50 50. It's work six, rest one. Now, in the New Testament, Paul takes us a step further, and he ties work to our heart. Look at what he says in Colossians. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Jesus is your boss. Jesus is your big boss. And what is amazing here is that Paul tells us that we will be rewarded from our work if it's not superficial, but it's something from the heart as unto Christ. I had somebody tell me after the last service that work really worked for me when I finally understood that I work for Jesus. Work, this thing we call our jobs, our, our, our vocation, according to the Bible, is not, it is not constricting. It is not limiting. It is an invitation to freedom and reward. I, I find this amazing. Uh, statement number three: work is service, now when we study the scriptures on this subject and the Bible has a lot to say about work, uh, you can define work in a couple of different ways, according to Genesis one and two, you can define work as cultivating uh, culture, or creating culture. A- anything you do in the broadest sense is contributing to or creating culture. But as the Bible unfolds, you can also define work as any act of service. Any act of service. Uh, look at what Peter says in First Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And you're thinking, well, how in the world does this relate to work? Well, look at what he says. You are a royal priesthood. What Peter is saying is to be a believer is to be a priest. This is why we in the church talk about the priesthood of every or all believers. And this is why... 500 years ago, Martin Luther said the medieval Catholic church's distinction or division between clergy and laity is fiction. That's Luther's word, fiction. It's a myth. Because we are all in full-time ministry. We are all priests. And so Luther pounded and pounded on 1 Peter 2, 9. Now when you go back to our passage in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15, we are told God put Adam and Eve in in the garden to work it and, and to take care of it. Now those two verbs, work and take care of, later in the Old Testament are used to describe the work of priests. And Levites in the tabernacle, later in the temple. Uh, uh, Their work was serving, serving God, uh, serving the nation. Now, think about this (laughs) to be a believer is to be a priest. It's 1 Peter 2 9. To be a priest is to serve. That's the nature of being a priest. But you go back to Genesis 2.15, according to that passage, one of the primary ways we serve God and we bless and serve other people then is through our work. And this is the Garden of Eden. Each and every one of you are in full-time ministry. Each and every one of you are priests. Whether it's your law firm, your garage, the hospital, the shop, Wherever. Now, let's think about this in light of our culture, our current American culture. Because we live in such a narcissistic, self absorbed, self centered meism culture, this is huge. Because what this means is if your work is about your advancement, your resume, your self fulfillment, your money, And not about serving God and others. You, as a Christ follower, have missed the point of work. Work is service. So if your work is about exalting you, then your work isn't about work. Your work is about you. And inevitably, over time, what happens is your aggressiveness at work will become abuse your drive will lead to burnout. Your anger will become rage. Your impatience will become fury and your self-centeredness will ultimately bleed into self-hate. It's only when the purpose of work is to serve and exalt God to serve other people. And we embrace that and we get that. We work to serve that we will find our greatest joy, our our, our, our greatest fulfillment, our our, our greatest delight. And now let me say this about retirement. Retirement. And it's only then, when we understand work is service, whatever our work, whatever our life situation, it's only then that God will deliver us from this notion that the ideal life is spending the last 35 years of your life on vacation. At the beach, playing golf, whatever. Look at how Peter puts it three verses later. Verse 12. Live such lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your, now notice, good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Maybe that day is coming soon. Your deeds is your work in the broadest sense. So what Peter is saying is we don't live to separate ourselves from uh, from non-Christians. We live to glorify God among them by our work, by our good deeds. Now let me go back to J.D. Greer's book. Look at what he says. Our secular vocations, Martin Luther said, are like masks God wears in caring for the world. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, he said that, as Luther said, we ask God to give us this day our daily bread. And how does God answer that prayer? He does so, Luther said, by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into the meal, and the person who prepared our meal. All these are in play when God answers our prayer for daily bread. They're the masks. God wears. Our English word vocation comes from the Latin word voca, meaning to call. The reformers are our vocations, whether secular or sacred, as callings by God to assist in his care for the earth. God created the world in an imperfect state with things left to do to perfect it. Repeatedly in Genesis 1, he declared his creation to be good. Good is good, but good is not perfect. Perfect means cannot be improved upon. You'll like this. Whenever I am with my wife out in public, I think she looks perfect. Her dress, makeup, hair, she literally cannot be improved upon. When she first wakes up in the morning, however, she's good. (laughs) And look at this last sentence. God put man into a good creation, not a perfect one, with a responsibility to cultivate the creation into all it could be. And he called us, each and every one of us, throughout our lives to work, to make disciples. Now let me say this about evangelism and work. I'll talk about this some more. As primary as evangelism is, I mean, people are on the edge of either heaven or hell. Evangelism is primary. It's a great commission. But as primary as evangelism is, we do not serve people at work only to convert them. Otherwise, our love would be conditional. We love people. We serve people whether they come to Christ or not, okay? God makes the sun shine on both the good and the evil, Jesus says. And so do we. There is glory, Peter says in this uh, verse, verse 12, in a job well done, whether people come to Christ or not. So uh, uh, we don't merely serve to convert. We serve because we are converted. So as Luther said in the Reformation, the person that peels the potatoes, that that person that sits there in the kitchen and just peels one potato after another is just as important and their work is just as dignified as the priest who serves at the altar. Each and every one of us are believer priests. Now finally, statement number four. Work has dangers. I've already talked about one, and that is thinking work is a curse. That is badmouthing work. So many of us badmouth work. I hate work. Oh man. Uh, the Gallup poll said one of the main reasons we hate work is because of our bosses. So we avoid work. Uh, we treat it like the plague, and that's one of the dangers. Uh, Another danger is uh, to err in the opposite direction and to make your work, your job, the most important thing in your life so that it becomes your master, your source of identity, your source of significance, your God, your idol. And the Bible says both are wrong. Work is good, but work is not God. That's the point of Genesis 1 and 2. Work is good, but it's not God. And you will not have a meaningful life without work. You will not. But work is not the meaning to life. Now let me conclude with a story. When one of our daughters was in high school, Harvard sent her an application. She didn't ask for it. Harvard just sent it to her. Unlike her father, she was a high performer in high school. And honestly, when she got that application, I thought, man, this is really cool because I could tell people I have a daughter at Harvard. (laughs) And that's nothing but blatant pride. Actually, it's in parental insecurity. It's living your life through the performance of your kids. And uh, a couple days uh, went by and then I was in a room and and I noticed that application uh, uh, to Harvard, from Harvard and to Harvard was in her wastebasket. And and I said, hey, you know, help me out here. You know, they've got this ego thing going. Uh, Tell me what's going on. And she said, dad, relax, I'll go to a good school but I'm not going to go to some name school where I have to spend 24 hours a day in the library studying. I could do it, but God is calling me to something else. And today, she's a missionary. Now, I'm not down on Harvard. Some of you have gone to Harvard. That's great. But when we make achievement and work and success our idol, we're in danger. And we have overinflated work. So how do we, on the one hand, avoid hating work? And on on the other hand, uh, overinflating it? Well, the answer according to God's word is by getting your eyes off yourself and off your work and and fixing your eyes on the written word, the word of God, Genesis 1 and 2 for starters, and the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. The saving, rescuing work of Christ on your behalf. Think about it. Who experienced, Jesus experienced the worst moment of work in all of human history and accomplished at the same time the greatest victory in work in all of human history by dying on the cross in our place for our sins. That's how much he loves us. And when you look to Jesus, when you go from the word and you look to Jesus by the presence of the spirit in you, And you see Jesus and his incredible work and being rejected and beaten and tortured and mocked and spit upon and stripped naked and standing there naked and then crucified because he loves you and you feel that love, it will change how you view work. And you will be free to serve because you have been served. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at the love of Jesus. We are amazed at the work of Jesus Christ. And we ask God... That you would give us the grace in the course of this series to see the incredible role you have given us in the world in our work. Bless us to that end for Jesus' sake. Amen.